about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life, and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. Today I'm talking to Pip, an incredible woman with a unique perspective on life. She's a Chinese medicine practitioner who runs Kundalini House, a health clinic slash yoga studio in North Fitzroy, Melbourne, where people can properly heal. She talks about the importance of caring, community, and making a difference in the world. What it was like to grow up in the country, a battle with depression, and dealing with sexual abuse. This was a beautiful conversation, and I truly hope you enjoy it as much as we did. What does Kundalini House, people listen to this, they won't know what this is, so tell everybody about Kundalini House first, before I ask you a question which relates to that. Okay. This is obviously a very special place, I want people to... Okay. Kundalini House is in North Fitzroy in Melbourne. It is a clinic, a health clinic. It's also a yoga studio and it's a place of community where amazing practitioners and teachers come together to work at their skill, at their art, which is which is health and we provide that support for them so that they can help clients come in and it's a it's a very safe place. It's a community. It's a very special place for me to work in and to be a part of. It's. Uh, I feel very lucky to be here because there's. You know, our goal was to create a space where people could really heal, but not just where they come in, they get a treatment, but to come in and then be able to do a personal practice as well. So that's where the yoga and qigong and the meditation come in. You know, very early on, we recognised that to achieve health, you really needed to be able to work on yourself in a way that was mindful and and have tools that you could use every day. So you gave yourself a little treatment if you like so it's empowering you to be able to take control of your health and and as human beings we need to work out how to be healthy within our bodies and and we can only do that when we work on them we exercise we move we meditate we we get a sense of who we are within our body and then we can start to see when it's out of balance when it feels good what's good for us what's not good for us we start to get our start to build up an intelligence about our body that enables us to remain healthy and that's where true health is I think for me and that's been my experience and and that's what we wanted to create so we've got this clinic here where we have these amazing practitioners all the way from psychologists to hypnotherapists to massage practitioners and then we also have a yoga studio where we have hatha kundalini yoga which is the big the big one we do but also a lot of yoga therapy on ptsd on anxiety and depression and qigong and meditation and what would you say kundalini house says about who you are probably community i think also i grew up with a father that was a medical doctor we spent a lot of time running around the hospitals when he was called in for emergency and we've 
and he's an extremely good doctor. He's a, a country doctor. He was a flying doctor. He's an anaesthetist, a GP, an obstetrician, a paediatrician. So we were very much encased with Western medicine. We feel very much a home in that way. But we also recognised that there was things that it didn't do and we looked outside of that. Billy's, <clears throat> my sister's a kinesiologist and bone therapist. I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner. So we started looking for medicine that was more based in health rather than disease. And so Kundalini House is a good balance of that. We don't have a preference whether you choose Western medicine or whether you choose all, you know, natural medicine. They all work together to, to help with your health. It's just what tool do you need at this moment to help you to achieve health. So I think Kundalini House is quite, is quite balanced in that. We don't, we're not extremely against Western medicine and we're not extremely for alternative medicine. What, we, what we're interested in is achieving health for our clients. So what do you need right now? and we can help you with that. So that I think there's a nice balance of that here as well. But also there's also a lovely balance of community within the practitioners as well, that each person is, is very uh, supportive of each other. There's integration with our work. Everybody is kind and considerate and easygoing, and so that, that makes a very nice place to work. And that's what we also wanted to achieve, a safe place for our clients, but also a safe place for our practitioners to do their work. And so you talk about safety and people feeling like they're part of the community. Why are those things? I mean, they resonate with me, but why are they important to you? Because the world can be hard. You know, hard things happen all the time. When we look after each other and we're kind to each other, it makes life easier. You know, support. We, We need to support each other. We can't control what's happening on the outside or what happens in the world to us, but when we're surrounded by people who love us, who care for us, who are considerate and kind, then we create something that is really beautiful. And that I think that's a big part of health as well. You know, public health, community health, and that's why I think it's important. And where did you, did you learn that as a child? Were you, was, was that the kind of environment you grew up in, in your family? Or has that come to you over? Because that's beautiful what you just said. Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. You know, I grew up in country Victoria. My parents are both from Zimbabwe, so they had accents. And we grew up in a place that I was born in Australia, but everybody would ask, so where are you from? It's like, I'm from Australia. No, no, but where are you really from? So we were always considered the outsiders, even though we'd been in the community forever. It was always, we were always slightly on the outer. So did that bother you? It did in a way. We we didn't have family here. It did and it didn't. I I didn't know any different, I guess, until I came to Melbourne and then suddenly there, I was really accepted for for just being me and it was like, wow, this is what being in community is about. And I guess I came to Melbourne and we were a bit of we were hippies and we you know like to live in community and and I guess I got this and it felt really nice to belong and it felt really nice to feel like I belonged and. You know, I was going through a lot of mental health stuff at the time. To have people who loved me unconditionally and were just there for me was just wonderful. So I guess maybe that was the time when I recognised that that we need to look after each other. And I think also my mum and dad, they're they're good people. They would have mirrored or they would have modelled, you know, being kind to people. So maybe I picked it up from there as well. But I, I think being kind to people is really important and being supportive of people are really important. You know, I strive for that every day if I can do that I mean sometimes I fail miserably but um, <laughs> you know <laughs> you've got to keep trying yeah 
And the people that work here with you, do they mirror what you've just said about? Yeah, yeah, they're incredible people. They, you know, they're inspiring and they're, yeah, they, they are just incredibly good people that, you know, their intention is to serve others, to help others, to be good at their craft and they mirror that completely. I think they achieve that. I think, you know, I'm, in, I'm inspired by them every day. So go back because I grew up in a city, so I'm fascinated by where you grew up, yeah. that you grew up in the country, mm. which is, I don't know, whoever's listening to this, but that's a, a very different world. So I imagine most people, because they do live in a city. So what was what was it like to live in, in the country? My mum and dad split up when I was 11. Mum was actually the farmer. So we, dad's the doctor and mum was the farmer. So we stayed with mum and we lived on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Like it was 20 minutes from the nearest town. The driveway was a 10 minute driveway and a thousand acres and we had a hundred horses we had a horse stud cattle sheep wow. ostriches it was just you know idyllic like it was just incredibly beautiful we'd set off in the morning on the horses and wouldn't come back till the evening and we just played in the bush with the horses that was it was just yeah great in that sense growing up in the country was amazing you know we had bush blocks we had a run up in the bush so each year we'd go up and get the cattle down from the high country you know i got a good appreciation of nature and and nature is such a such a medicine in itself. It's such a healing place to be. So we grew up around that, and that was pretty special. How was the the transition from family to parent being, you know, with your mum and not with your dad? It was great. Mum and dad split up amicably. They took a year to lick their wounds, and then they said after a year, right, that's it. You know, we're grown ups. Let's get on with this. We've got four kids. And so we spent every Christmas together. We They went on holidays together. Dad remarried this amazing woman, and she's been amazing. And now Mum and Dad live on the same property. Mum had got remarried and she divorced. So now they live on Dad and Mary and my stepmother's farm. And Mum lives on one side of the farm. Dad lives on the other side of the farm. They great friends. They look after each other. They, they all get along really well. We still spend every Christmas together. And so for us, it was a very amicable amazing experience for them to split up it it wasn't working anymore for whatever reasons they had but they really just got on with it and said okay you know whatever you know problems we had we've got children we just got to move past that so that that wasn't so traumatic for me it was I mean it was sad and it was different but it was also very positive and tell me about your love of horses because I know you had a history around horses why did you love horses so much I don't. I mean, I don't know whether you've been in contact with horses, but horses were the first. No, it's a simple <laughs> answer to that. I lived in a city all my life, so yeah. no experience. I'm not saying I've never been on a horse. I have, yeah. but I don't know horses. Horses um, communicate through through body language, through chi. They are such energetic beings, if you like. You know, I the first job I ever had was starting horses, breaking in horses. I I didn't like people when I was little. It was only horses for me. That was all I wanted to ever do. And I met a man who taught me the to break in horses, the natural horsemanship way, which is all about talking horses language. So horses you can talk to them in the same way they talk to each other, just by using using your is your um, energy up? Is your energy down? Do you want them to get going? Do you want them to slow down? So they they are watching every single thing you do. They're mirroring your nervous system. They are looking and they're concentrating on you. And if you 
tune into that. You can communicate with a horse and you can ask them to do things when they're, you know, 10 feet away and they'll do it. You know, ask them to, to start moving or backing away or come to you just by using your body language. So horses were the first time it clicked to me that there was something more on in the world than just what we were told. There was some energetic force that was at play around us within us that we could use to communicate and these horses were picking up on it and I was using it to to communicate with them and they're incredibly sensitive beasts so their nervous system is very tuned to the herd and when you become a part of the herd they're very tuned into you they're they're amazing and so these animals to be around them and to be with them is such a privilege it's so, and it's so healing they feed back to you your fears your joy everything they're they are they are with you. So that that ex- you interrupt you. How did how did when you what you just said then? How do they feed back to you your fears and your, how does that work? You're saying to me, I'm going. I can't understand. How how's that possible? Well, they. I mean, they use horses in therapy nowadays, and for this particular reason. So, when the horses in a herd, their enteric nervous system is is mirroring every other horse's nervous system in the pack. And so, one when gets clue of the predator their ears come up they shoot they, they start to tense up every it'll feed through the whole herd really really quickly and then they'll run away and from the predator so that's in their best interest to be attuned to your nervous system to be attuned to what you're thinking so if you're displaying fear the horse will feed that back to you it will pick up on that and feel a little bit jumpy as well because it's like wow someone else in my herd is fearful why because I've got to be aware of this. So they'll start to, I mean, I don't know if if you say you've ridden a horse and if you're scared, the horse will be a little bit more jumpy and if it's a sensitive horse, it'll... And so that's how it feeds back to you. So if you're feeling nervous or anxious or not completely centred with a horse, it will be a little bit nervous, anxious and not completely centred either. So because you're the main, you're the leader of the pack. So if you lower your energy, you, you know, you just become into your parasympathetic nervous system you're deep in your breath you regulate yourself so you're feeling nice and calm the horse will take a deep breath do a bit of chewing with its mouth it'll start to show signs that it too is regulating its nervous system calming down slowing down and so you start to get this feedback if you're up and feeling nervous or not concentrating the horse is going to be doing that as well if you're nice and centered and calm and balanced the horse is going to do that as well so you get this beautiful feedback mechanism that goes on and that's what how they're using it with the um with the horse therapy they have people who can't regulate who find it very difficult difficult to regulate their nervous systems they're in their sympathetic nervous system they're in fight flight and and freeze and they work with the horse and the and when the horse starts, when they start to calm down, the horse will calm down as well. And the horse will work with them to start to feel, to learn how to regulate their own nervous system. Amazing. They're amazing. They're amazing. I mean, all animals are amazing in that way as well. Horses are just big and beautiful and sensitive. Oh, they're such incredible creatures to be around. They're, I mean, I, I don't have a horse at the moment and I haven't had one for, but you miss them. You miss them. Yeah. And so d- when you talked about they were they were kind of like friends or they were friends to you? They were definitely friends. We um, we had a horse stud, so we bred warm bloods and we would show jump every weekend. So we'd take the track, load up six or seven horses and go off to a show, make a, 
yard show jump for the day and or the night and then come back and they you know they, they were really were friends we worked as a team together they would get excited if they did well in an event we'd get excited you know they would have their down days or up days and you'd you know you'd sometimes snuggle in with them in the stables they'd lie down and you'd curl up with them and they're they're very affectionate and yeah they're friends yeah. at that time were there other people teaching you things there was, but back then, the you broke in horses. Like I first learned how to break in horses from my stepfather, and it was very fear-driven. You would break them very much. So you tie one leg up and chase them around a yard until they got tired enough, and then you jump on so, and till they stopped playing up. You know the natural horsemanship way is, is very different. Where you where you communicate with them, with their way of communicating. And it's, it, there's a lot to it that would be difficult to explain. But you get to the point where you just hop on them and they're happy for you to hop on them. You're, you're the leader of the pack. If that's what you'll do, okay, great, and off you go. And and it's not based in fear. It's based in in her mentality and respect. And they, become, they are very different creatures when you start them that way rather than break them in. And the guy who taught me that, Wayne was one of the first people who taught me about energy and made me interested in in natural medicine. And actually, he was, he's a really interesting man. And he said to me once, he said, Pippo, you're not going to be a horse person. You're going to be a massage therapist. And I looked at him and I thought, what? I, said, I don't even how, like... How old were you when you, when you told you 18. that? 18. I didn't even like people. Like, I just was not interested in people at all. And, I, you know, I was really cross with him. I was like, no, I'm going to work with horses for the rest of my life, Wayne. I'm not going to be a massage therapist. Why would I do that? And then years later, I rang him up because I, I had to study massage to before I could go to the Chinese medicine. And I said, you'd never believe it, Wayne, but I'm studying to be a massage therapist. <laughs> and I, you know, that's, I realised that I did like people that just, just hadn't been around the right ones, maybe. Because living in the country, does that mean you had less exposure to and based on the size of the farm and all the rest of it? They yeah. weren't like they would be in, in schools and cities where there's or, you know a lot more kids around and... Was that kind of how it was or, or Maybe. I just don't, yeah, maybe. It's it's hard to say why didn't I like people back then. I had a few experiences of people that weren't particularly good. and. But do you think that was because you had you saw less people so then if you did have a bad experience with someone, that would impact you more than if you had ten times as many people and therefore that wouldn't, you know, you'd kind of get that there's someone up here, you can't see my hand, someone down there. Yeah, possibly. I'm not sure. I don't know. I guess because I think people who live in highly populated places can also not like people. Yeah, true. So possibly. I mean, I don't know. You can't attribute that now to what you look back on it now and you can't think why that was the case. Why didn't I like people? I'm sure there must be an answer to it somewhere. Well, I didn't trust people at some stage. It was, I mean, I have an experience of sexual abuse in my life by someone that I did trust. And I don't know whether that was something that I just... And that actually started uh, uh, my living with depression and that was the trigger for it. And that was when I was 16. So I don't know... And that's probably probably the reason. And if you don't mind me asking you then, at that period, was that just somebody who you were with or was that somebody like as in a partner or, or no, boyfriend no, or something? No, it was someone that in the horse riding community that... Uh, that I that I had looked up to and was was travelling with and yes it was yeah he 
he took advantage. That would definitely impact you, clearly. Yeah, it did. It was a... I mean, at the time... I mean, I'm 45 years old, so at that time, especially in the country, men had such leniency. You know, we grew up knowing we had to be careful of older men. You know, we had to to move away from them. We had to make sure we didn't... You know, there was always... It was a... There was always an understanding that they were lecherous in some way, and that we had to be careful. and And so we grew up with this uh, with this knowledge that this was this was the case. That it, it wasn't it wasn't this movement where we understood that you couldn't sexualize a child or you couldn't. It was just different. I different. I don't want to certainly put a negative spin on it, but it was just this sense of country Australia. Men had a lot more liberties than they would certainly have now. And I woke up with this man on top of me one night and I remember thinking, oh, damn, you know, I let this happen. This is, you know, not that what the, what was he doing? He's, you know, 18 years older than me. I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be in this situation at all. But that this was my doing somehow that I wasn't, I wasn't protective enough of myself that I had allowed this to happen. So I really didn't clock it as sexual abuse, just that someone had got to me and I hadn't been hadn't been alert enough to for it not to happen. Does that make sense? Completely. So it wasn't till years later when I was struggling with this depression that I saw a therapist and they said, you realise, and I just happened to mention that as something that maybe would trigger. And she said, that was sexual abuse. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, and the penny dropped like, Oh my God! That you're right. That was sexual abuse. I I never clocked it as that, and that was, the, you know, from that moment on, I started getting depressed. It was a very suicidal depression, and it was I struggled with it, and I had tried Western medicine that didn't work, and I ended up going overseas, just searching for something that could help this this depression that just wouldn't go away, and. I ended up finding it in meditation, in Chinese medicine, in Qigong actually, and 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 Kundalini yoga, and that was what stopped it in the end. And that particular event, I went to the police seventeen years later, and I I got I went through the process of saying no, and that really helped. And I actually spoke to him, and it was an incredibly healing experience. I wanted to, I either had to. I either had to take him to court or I had to or I could stop the proceedings and and taking him to court meant that he would be, he would go to jail and I spoke to the police that was involved who was this incredibly amazing police officer I had the most amazing experience with with the police in this regard and I said to him you know I feel as though in my heart I've healed I said uh, you know I've said no I managed to I'm, I've, I've told my story. You've approached him. You've told him that he's done the wrong thing and that he has to go to court. I said, you know, where do I go from here? Do I do I take him to court? Will he go to jail? And he said, well, you've got a pretty good case and you're a pretty good witness, so he he may go to jail. And I said, I'm not really interested in punishment. How do I know? Does that even work? Do they you know do they stop stop that kind of behaviour? He said, well, there's three different sorts of people. There's people who will we'll talk to them and then they'll shit themselves so much and not actually realise they've done the wrong thing and that'll be it. There'll be others who'll go to jail and they'll keep offending. And there's some you know, some people in between. He said, And I said, well, well, all I'm really interested is that he never does it again to anybody else. And he said, well, you're just going to have to decide what you're going to do. So I, I thought about this and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to ring him up and ask him because I, I'm not really, I, as I said, I'm not really interested in 
in punishment, I'm interested in him stopping. And I was interested in him saying no as well and a definite no that, no, I didn't want you to do that and I'm saying no now. So I rang him up and we had this conversation and I said to him, did you realise that 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 was sexual abuse? And he, he didn't. He had, you know, he didn't really get it. He that was he was known as a bit of a womaniser and and we I had this amazing conversation where with him where I told him you are respected in the community. It's your opportunity to stop this, to to teach your children, teach the people around you not to treat women like this. And it was an incredibly amazing conversation. And we I ended up finishing the conversation I said to my partner you know I feel really healed the only thing that he didn't say was sorry but you know that's okay and then he I got a phone call he rang me back and he was crying and he said I just have to say that I'm so sorry and it was just this it felt like something had occurred and and I I don't know whether he went he changed his tune like he said he was going to do and he was going to be a role model for change within the community or he recognized that what he you know his his woman womanizing was actually dangerous and damaging to the women he thought he was charming but I trusted him at the time and that's all I have to go go with but that was also an incredible pivotal moment in my life of healing to be able to do that and speak to him and move on and start to be a healed being and I was grateful for that I was grateful for him talking to me I guess as well yeah that's incredibly brave do you, do you look back at it now and as you're telling me to do what you did in lots of respects, the, the healing process, but the actual, you're calling somebody up, yeah. I can't even comprehend how that would. It was, but I was struggling with fertility at the time and I really felt that my depression and that abuse was in my body, that that sexual abuse was was it was like, it's like abuse almost becomes like a vibration in your body and I was desperate to get this vibration out of my body so I was following every certain certain path where I could heal so I could stop this vibration I could feel it within me the fear the tense tension that was through my sexual organ through my reproduction organ and I knew on some level that this was also preventing me from having a child so I needed to I was using everything that I could to try to find a way to, to heal from this. And so it, it wasn't a matter of bravery. It was a matter of necessity. I was just following where I needed to go, and that's where it took me. And eventually I did have a baby, and I have healed, and it's still a, a process that's ongoing. There's some things that I don't trust. And go on, tell me what that would be now. So they, that comes still, there's still it within you? It does. There's... I, I fear some men. I fear men. I, well, it's not it's not a conscious fear, but it's a, a body fear. I can feel it. I feel... Is it a type of man or is no, this an interaction with someone? It's a stranger. I, 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 I can feel my body. It's a very subtle thing. I can feel my body tense up and I've become alert. I've become alert to danger, which is a sad thing, I think. I'd like to heal more from that. That's not... A nice thing to know about your body in regards to that. And do you think there's a, a knock-on effect internally, both mentally and physically, because you haven't completely moved on and that still resides in you somewhere? No, I think it, it's who I am. I'm accepted that. And that's it's not a bad thing. It's just a something that 
you know we've all we've all got something and I just have to love it when I feel it and it it's just something that's a part of me yeah but it you know it also makes us who we are doesn't it those things there is a gift in those in those struggles in our life and they're difficult but there's also a gift in it I you know it makes me very needing or wanting to be kind to people because I recognize that we can damage each other and it hurts I can resonate with that in a completely different way yeah when I was a child I had not issues but there were the way I thought I was treated by my parents and how that felt and as a consequence I then behave subsequently in a different way with people because I know how it made me feel so I don't want other people to feel the same way that's right yeah so clearly it's not the same as you but, no but, well, it is but, the, the same. but it in is that the same. sense it is exactly yeah, the same it is exactly the same so yeah. I, I totally get what you're saying I it's very powerful yeah I mean I can almost cry now because that's very yeah. you know yeah, same. Because I feel that. Mm. Going back to the meditation, and what, what was the, what, where was the inner, you said meditation and yoga brought you to a place of, how did that, how, how were you able to, because I'm sure there are lots of people who either do meditate or do um, a form of yoga and understand that, but there are people who don't maybe listen to this. What lesson would, what advice would you give somebody, or what would you say that how it worked for you in terms of how you were able to heal or what helped you get through the depression? How I got to it was I was struggling to find a way to heal this depression, and I and I travelled around India and I taught taught English to the Tibetan monks up in Dharamsala and I got very sick chest infection and my friend Tibetan friend took me to a Tibetan doctor because I couldn't make it down to the western hospital and she looked at my eyes and my pulse and then gave me these herbs and said take that and I thought oh god I'm going to die you know I've got this chest infection and I've got rabbit poo it's not going to help but I took these medicine and within two days the chest infection had gone I thought, wow, that was pretty full on. That's pretty good medicine. I climbed up a hill in Nepal on a mountain, about 4,000 metres, and I got altitude sickness, which makes you even more depressed. So I'm sitting up on this mountain thinking, I am never going to heal from this bloody depression. What am I going to do? And I thought, you know, the only medicine that's come close to being amazingly effective or I thought was really clever was that Tibetan medicine. I'm going to go down and find it and study it. So I walked down, came back to Melbourne. The closest thing I could find was Chinese medicine. And so I enrolled the next month into acupuncture, never had an acupuncture treatment in my life, and started going to acupuncture university. And I met this this man who was doing Qigong. And Qigong, as a Chinese medicine practitioner, you're always suggested to go and do Qigong. Qigong, Qigong is energy movement and so you learn this and it's a it's a Chinese form of yoga if you like and he took me to see this Qigong master and I would go every week to this Qigong class and it's a very strong meditation very strong internal practice and every week I would throw a tantrum get out of the car and say I'm not going I hate it and he'd get me back in the car and I'd go and th- and it took three months to finish this course the, the change that came across me in that three months, I, I almost went mad, I think, in, in such a way that I felt really out of my body. It was, it was 
doing something incredible shifting and changing within me. And it was, I didn't re- know what it was at the time, but it was just these, these meditations and these, these movements that were adjusting from a Chinese medicine point of view, adjusting my qi. What we do know now is that it also changes the way our brain works. When people have had trauma, our brain works in a different way. And so as this was adjusting my chi, it's also adjusting my neurological system. And it, people afterwards said to me, it was like you'd, you'd gone off with the fairies. And it was just like that. I felt really, really strange for the three months. And at the end of the three months, I, I went to the Qigong teacher and he gave me some acupuncture. And he said, oh, he said, and I hadn't spoken to him. He said, something very bad had happened to you. Your spirit had went away. I brought it back again. And we, you keep doing Qigong every single day. So from the moment I had that first acupuncture treatment with him, my depression stopped. I'd count the days. It's been 10 days since I've been depressed. This is really weird. It's been 55 days since I've been depressed. Whatever was was occurring at that moment, I thought, I'm not stopping this. There's no way I'm going back to that again. And so I started that Qigong practice and I did it every day. And then that Qigong went to Kundalini Yoga, which does a similar type of thing. It's a very powerful practice with mudras and mantras and and movement that helps you to change and adjust and balance your your chi, your energetic system, or just simply your neurological system and your endocrine system. And from that moment on, it's been... I've had that as my practice every single day, and it it's like I do a little treatment. It balances me up. It, it um, regulates me. I become stronger and more healthier, and I don't get depressed. And that's been a very big gift. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's different for everybody. And, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that was the only thing I did. I also had a lot of support. I, had, I went counselling twice a, twice a week. Within that change of my system and healing from this, Qigong and yoga was a part of the package that I used to help me to, to, to create health. Who would you say has been your greatest teacher? Oh, there's been lots of them. I can tell that from what yeah. you're telling me, but uh, who stood out for you? I think the the depression has been my biggest teacher. Maybe you know, as a thing, is if you want people that would have to be, you know, the horse whisperer Wayne. It would have to be my Qigong teacher, Professor Wong. It'd be my sister Billy, my mum, my dad. What about them or what they've taught you has resonated with you, stuck with you, and helped you? They've all been extremely kind. They have been a big support to me. They are wise. They have been good role models. Each one, slightly different things. They've taught me things. They've stuck by me. They've had faith in me. I think when people have faith in you, you know, that's incredibly powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Even when I was being, you know, a depressed little shit, really. And, you know, depression doesn't bring the best out in you. It really does bring the worst out in you. You know, those people stuck by me. And saw something in me that I didn't see at the time, maybe. And kept teaching me and kept helping me. How do you live a life of health and happiness? How do I do it? Or yeah. How do you, how have you achieved that? Oh, you know, I'd have to say my partner has also been the biggest influence. I, you know, I forgot to mention him. He's, you know, he stuck by me through all of those things. And so when I'm thinking about how do I achieve my health, he's very much a part of that. And how, when did you meet your partner? 18 years ago. 19 years ago. So you were early 20s? Yeah, yeah. His name is Pip as well. A little bit confusing? Very. (laughs) And how did you meet him? In a cafe, in a friend's cafe. They said, Pip, meet Pip. And 
it was love at first sight. Amazing. Yeah, it's been love ever since. Yeah. And so, all, so he's helped you. Yeah, I mean, having a supportive partner helps. You know, is incredible for health. I mean, I think having people around you that can support you. I think we're very privileged to be able to have good health in a lot of ways. It, we can choose. We have choices. We we can choose the, the things that help us. We've got education. We've got resources at our fingertips. I think, you know, we are in a very privileged place to be able to make choices that are healthy. And so the choices that I make, I make, I do my personal practice is like absolute, you know, such a cliche, but, you know, I do my morning practice every day and, you know, between 30 minutes to an hour every day. And that just is for me just absolute gold. I And take me through that practice then. So I'd be interested again, because people listen to this, they'd go... You're oh. inspirational. You are. I think you are. Thank you. So they would be interested in what does your practice look like? Well, f- well, I've, I mean, there's many different practices out here. So, I'll, you know, there's and many different practices that will resonate with you at a different time in your life. At the moment, what resonates with me is kundalini yoga. So I will get up, I'll get myself a hot water, I'll roll my mat out and I'll sit down and I'll I'll tune in, which is we have a special tune in that connects us with our inner wisdom and the wisdom that's been before us. And then I'll do a kriya and a meditation. And the meditation that I'm doing at the moment is for a thousand days. So I'm up to about one year. And so I do that every day for the meditation is 11 minutes. It's a kriya meditation. So it's kundalini yoga has, it's a little bit different than the hatha yogas that we're used to. Kundalini yoga has a set of asanas, a set of postures that are grouped together to form a kriya and that kriya has a certain outcome so I'll choose a kriya so it's more of a physical practice and it'll be you know a kriya for for the for the third chakra or a kriya to to open up your heart or a kriya for alignment of the spine or a kriya for the endocrine system or a kriya for pituitary gland and it helps to create health within the body and then you generally have a rest after that, lie down, uh, and then you start your, your your meditation. And the meditation I'm doing at the moment is called Sadashan Chakra Kriya. And that is um, a mudra, which is a hand posture, some pranayama, which is uh, breath work, and a mantra, which is a chant. And I do that for 11 minutes. And then I sign off and I start my day. And what would you say to people who kind of go, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. That sounds fantastic, but it's not for me. Yeah. Oh, well, then find what's right for you. It could be anything. But what would you, I suppose, not necessarily specifically what you just said, but the concept of meditation and yoga or things like that. What would you, how, how would you advocate? If someone said to you, like I am now, okay, Pip, tell me why it's great to do yoga and great to do meditation. What's, what's so good about it? Oh, I've heard about it, but well, come on. You get to know yourself. Like the biggest relationship we have is with ourself and and yoga, meditation, exercise, jogging, whatever it is, gets you in touch with yourself. It's, it's about mindfulness. So you start to learn about yourself in a very deep way and you start to recognize some of the patterns that you have, some of the belief systems. And we have plenty of belief systems in us that are not, we don't even actually resonate with anymore we don't even believe but they're still there so meditation and all these personal practice gives you an opportunity every day to sift through all of those to 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 clean out the bucket bucket to 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 start to connect with yourself in a meaningful way so you have an intelligence about your inner self so you you can walk through the day and think do I want to have that extra coffee today and you know today my body's not feeling like it no 
oh, yes, my body's feeling really good. I'm going to have that extra coffee or that croissant with extra butter and the jam. No, today I'm not. It doesn't feel like. So we start to get this communication with our body that enables us to treat it in a way that is is informed. We can start to organize diets that resonate with us, not one that we get off the internet that we think is good. You know, we can take, okay, when I eat that, how does it make me feel? Oh, it makes me feel like this. Okay, it makes my body feel like this. Oh, that feels good. That works for me, but doesn't work for me when I'm really stressed. So I must remember not to eat that when I'm really stressed because my body doesn't doesn't digest it. But this works really for me. It's good if I do this, if I, you know, I don't do that. So all of a sudden we have these informed choices that we can make to work towards us feeling better health which makes life easier which makes us happy if that's what you want it makes a whole range of different things it makes it gives us more power in our life and we're not just a slave to our impulses to our to what's around us all of these things and that's that's actually a really nice place to be it's much easier to live i find anyway it sounds like it to me yes i agree with you yeah well, you've travelled a lot because I know that. I've read some stuff on your website and you've mentioned it in this conversation. What would you say has been your greatest experience? I think we I did six months in Malawi in Africa and we worked in... We, my parents come from Zimbabwe and actually my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, all, we've been in Zimbabwe and South Africa from a since the 1880, I think it's landings where, you know, the white people, so we're white, took over. And I always got the sense that I know that my, gra- my, my relatives probably didn't treat the land or the people particularly well. And I always felt like I, I wanted to go back and... Just an innate feeling about that? Well, I know from memoirs as well and stories that, you know, they probably... And also, I mean, history. I mean, what we were English, they didn't really treat, you know, the owners of the land very well we know this so I'm sure my relatives (laughs) were just the same (laughs) so I always wanted to go back and I love Africa and maybe do some volunteer work or something like that so we went back and my cousin who lives in Malawi got my partner and I a job in a hospital in Malawi and he made uh, equipment for the physio room and I organized the library and followed the doctors around and and had a little acupuncture business on the side and and just had this amazing experience. But then we got to go up onto this mountain called the Malangi Massive and build a hut for three months. And it was in the middle of nowhere. It was just us on this hill with a generator and a tent and we built these two huts with these people would cut, hand cut these pieces, these wood, and then carry it on their head across where we would then build the hut. And it I was like, this, this was me set. I could have stayed on that mountain forever. It was just the most amazing experience. And I just loved it there. And I, what did you love about it? Oh, the solitude, the being up on this mountain. Does that tap into what you said before about not loving people so much? Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, I love nature. I love being yeah. out in nature. You know, it wasn't being away from people, I don't think, at that stage. I think it was. And it's such an incredible continent and an incredible place and, I just felt, you know, I went over there with that classic thing of I'll give back, I'll do some some volunteer work and I didn't give anything. It gave like gave everything to me. You know, I got so much out of it. We lived in a little village with no electricity and you know, midst of just other little houses around the place and the people were incredible and they were welcoming and I just learnt such a lot about 
life and that experience gave me so much it was I really was really really grateful about it so that was you know that was one of my travel experiences that I really really love why is it so important to be heard and seen I mean, you, you talk about Kundalini House being a community and yeah, people yeah. to be, and you mentioned that at the beginning of the conversation. I wonder whether what I feel like saying is it's not that important to me, but maybe because I'm in a privileged position that I am seen and heard, so I haven't at the moment. I feel what I feel. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it is important. So I must, I must be seen and heard. I'm just trying to figure out what my response is with that. For me, I think it's important to see other people. For me, I, that's not so important, but to to make people feel good. But then it's interesting what you just said because then what you said is you want other people to feel good. So if I, that's a different question. So if I said to you, what feeling do you want people to take away from being around you? But what, yeah. would, you, what would you say to me? To be uplifted, to feel themselves, to feel, to, and when I say feel themselves, to feel their true self, to feel, to feel loved, to feel loved by themselves, I think. But why do you want people to feel that way? Because then... Then we we're healed. Then you know. Then we can heal the world. Then we can. I mean, this is such a you know a, a big thing. I mean, this could be so naive of me to think, but I'm doing. If we love each other, if we love ourselves, if we're good to each other, then anything is possible. We can we can save save the environment. We can work to our strengths. We can be kind to every single being on the planet, including insects and animals and all of these things. Imagine if we all felt good about ourselves, if we all felt really, truly empowered within ourselves. Imagine the choices that everybody would make. It would just be incredibly like Nirvana, wouldn't it? So I remember I had a go at being an activist and I chained myself in a dugout bath in a, bar, in a bath in a dugout and I chained myself in front of this bulldozer at this forest because I thought, you know, I really the environment is really important to me. I need to be, you know, an activist. And I remember just the fear that I felt and the absolute, it just shook me to my bone as this bulldozer came towards me and sort of, you know, there was police shouting and, you know, talks about arrest. And I remember afterwards shaking as I got out and we'd stopped them at that stage and thinking... You know, that's that's not my skill. <laughs> that's not my strength. I can't do this. My nervous system is not strong enough to deal with that. You know what? I'll just give these people acupuncture. I'll look after the people who are at the front line and go, that's your job. And so I remember thinking back then, my job to look after the planet, to look after the world, is is what I do best, which is 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 health and is healing. And so if I can heal people and make them feel their very very best health and they will in turn go on and make choices that will make the world a better place and that's how I will help the world that's how I will be able to serve through this lifetime that's how I'm going to help save the environment if that's you know if that's a a thing we're able to do at this stage but I want people to feel good about themselves because I want them to go off and make good choices I want them to be the very best that they can be so we can be the very best as a species. Yeah, I mean, that might be <laughs> too much to ask or too pie in the sky, but that's what actually how I feel. That's what I want. That's what... That's amazing. Yeah, that's what I really want. That's what I... And, you know, as I said before, I don't always do it. Sometimes I get it incredibly wrong and that's okay as well. I'll try again. Well, but how do you get it incredibly wrong? You just oh. say that to me. What do you get wrong? Because I'm like, had. Sometimes I don't make people feel good. Sometimes I, you know, I allow my insecurities to get the better of me, and I, you know, 
say things or do things that are coming from my own pain rather than my own heart. Sometimes I behave in a way that's not the best I can be and, you know, sometimes I can be right pain. I struggle to imagine that in this conversation and my interaction with you, but you're human like everybody else, so I'm sure that's... Oh, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very there. Brilliant. That was fun. Been amazing. Thank you. That was really fun. Excellent. It's been talking to you. Pleasure. Absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you or anyone you know would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal1, one is spelt O-N-E, at gmail.com. That's morereal1 at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed listening and learned something, then I would be so grateful if you could leave a five-star review as this will help other people to find this podcast. I'm very grateful as always for your support.